I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to Your Story. This is episode 13, and I'm your host, Ian Kath. Just a quick reminder, there's a site, yourstorypodcast.com. Go check it out. Email links, make a comment at the bottom of the post. It's all there. You can subscribe through a variety of directories. I've got a few more buttons on the left-hand side these days, and you can get hold of the feed through Blueberry or iTunes or any of the others. You can also get hold of the raw feed if you want to use it in your own way. Love to hear from you. It's nice to know you're out there. The link's at the bottom of the poster for the music from IOTA Promonet. IOTA has some really cool music. If you haven't been over there, people, I'd suggest you go check them out. You know, all independent artists who are trying to get their music out, get it well known. And uh, they make a couple of tracks available to people like myself to use to spread the good word. And uh, not only is it other tracks that I'm using pretty funky and pretty fun, there's also a lot of outstanding music there. And... Uh, the big corporate guys aren't getting their bite of it, are they? It's all independent. Don't you love Internet 2.0? Talking about independence and independent organisations, down the road from me is an Aboriginal art gallery, and uh, a while back it was suggested I should drop in and introduce myself. Well, in doing so, I met Rod, who you heard way back on episode 5, about his life and all that sort of thing. But I was actually told to go and introduce myself to John, who owns the gallery. And I did, and we sat down a couple of weeks back and we had a bit of a discussion about his view on the whole Aboriginal thing. John's story is very different to Rod's, and it's good to see different stories, isn't it? John, like many Aboriginal Australians, he's of mixed heritage. And to my surprise, I discovered that he is descended from the young men of the South Sea Islands who were stolen by the blackbirders and brought to Australia to work in the sugarcane industry, mainly as sugarcane cutters. Uh, in the early 19th centuries, they came out from around about ooh, 1820 through to 1850. Uh, he, they're hard-working young men, you know, like if you can imagine what it must have been like, and we talk about this a little bit in the show, how tough it was to work in uh, cutting sugarcane. That's a hard, hard life. But this left an indelible attitude on John, you know, basically of hard work and achieving things for personal success. Rather than feeling that he was hard done by, he feels quite privileged to be living in Australia. Even though this is his heritage going back 60,000 years, he's privileged to be here. And this has led him to many different things in his life, including what he's doing for his greater community, but also operating this gallery, and it's, it's doing very well. This is a particularly long episode. I wanted to let it go because John covers so many interesting and insightful things. I felt it was important to leave it all in. Particularly towards the end, John mentions some points I've never heard before, uh, some alternative ways of looking at the, uh, the things that have been going down with Aboriginal Australians and the importance of what needs to be done in his view. I would suggest if you can't stick out the whole episode, hang around towards the end or even fast forward to the last 10 minutes or so of the show what he says towards the end is uh, I think quite brilliant and uh, it's definitely worth listening to this is his story it's Tuesday 19th of February 2008 sitting back in the gallery with John where uh, we're going to talk about his life and we're going to talk about what it means to be Australian Aboriginal gallery owner and all things regarding his world. G'day, John. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, bro. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, good to have you on, mate. Good to have you Thanks, on. Thanks, bro. We've been sitting here for a few minutes talking about a few things, and you've uh, spun mm. me a bit of a yarn about your history already. So <laughs> may, may, maybe you can repeat some of that for those people who are listening in. So, uh, so what's your story, mate? Yeah, no, I'm from the um, Bunjilung area of the East Coast. Or northern New South Wales, really. Um, 
But my language group, they're the Minjimbal people, or my ancestors were the Minjimbal people of um, the Tweed Heads area, which um, Bunjilung's made up of 13 language groups, with Minjimbal's the, the Tweed area, runs from Brunswick River through to the Tweed River mouth. So you got Fingal. Is that traditionally how they, how the tribes broke down? Was into in language groups? Yeah, okay. yeah. So you had your different dialect groups. Yeah. So, um, but the big thing with the Tweed Black community is we we're actually a mix of um, Bunjilung Aboriginal, Noel, South Sea Kanaka slaves that were brought here in eighteen fifties. So my granddad was one of those that came on the ships, and. Uh, he came North Australia, Cooktown, Stradbroke Island, and finally Fingal, where we were all raised. Now, I know about I know about the slave. You know, it's barely even known as the slave trade. It's known as mm. you know, Knacks and stuff like that. But mm. for those people who don't know anything about it, a lot of people don't even realise there was a slave trade in mm. Australia. Mm. Fill us in on the history of that. But yeah, during the eighteen fifties. The Australian government wanted to grow sugar, was wanted to start growing sugarcane on a, more of a commercial basis. Very similar, I guess, to you know the Afro-Americans and the Fijian Indians, cheap labour. So they send their ships in the Pacific, mainly uh, Solomon Islands, New Hebrides, Fiji, uh, Tanner Island, all those places, and because a lot of our uh, our grandfathers were very young boys, so they, they like any our uh, history uh, that we know of, there was well over sixty thousand were bought here, and mainly to North Queensland. So they cleared the land, plant the sugar cane, and sixty thousand. Sixty thousand. Eighteen fifties would have been probably the majority of the population. Oh, that's well, a huge numbers. That's a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. Well, you take that over a period of you know five to eight years, I think it was. Um, was it under government decree? The government? Yeah. Well, they, did they have contracts with um, well, shipping companies? Did they get into that sort of commercialisation? Oh, yeah. It was it was big business, you know, for the shipping companies. And, of yeah. course, there was no return to the islanders. They just basically... Well... Did they just steal the young men? Or did yeah, they well, they were basically them? just stolen. But the, the government, you know, they had written documents saying, oh, you've been bought here, like, on a three-year contract, and... Stuff like that. So they spun it as though it was an internship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. A lot of them died, of course, on the trip over, you know. Um, and it's not that far compared to no, crossing no. the Atlantic fragments. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Very short trip, actually, when you look at it, the distance. But um, just the shock and fear and, you know, everything else. And, of course, a lot of them uh, ran away. A lot of them, though, they, they had a taste of the Western life and thought, you know, it was much better than living on the islands. A lot of them made it back home, but a lot of them, of course, didn't know where they were from, you know. And, of course, the log books, a lot of them were just, you know, lost, burnt, <laughs> ripped up That's or right. whatever, you name it, you know. No, and they, as far as they knew, they just came from their home island and... On yeah. a global scale, that home island could have been anywhere. Could have been anywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. Any of 30 island groups in yeah. the Pacific. Yeah. So like I was just saying to you before, like at Tweed Heads, every year they form a tour group, maybe 30, 40 people, and um, they'll all go back to the islands trying to trace their families. Right. And uh, as I was saying before, we've only discover discovered in the last two years our grandfather's real name and started to meet our other half of our family from the island. Okay, so this is your great-grandfather? Yeah, my great-grandfather, yeah. Um, and so he came out here as a young Kanak slave? Yeah, yeah, on one of the And Kanak means islander, doesn't islander, it? Islander, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's a reference to, you know, uh, island slave, yeah. So that's been a long journey for us trying to trace our family now, and did you know that you had islander heritage prior to this experience oh yeah you did. yeah yeah because my granddad my, my great granddad yeah he tried to pass on a lot of the language and culture and dances and that like to my mum and all that and because uh, a lot of them thought he was silly so they most of them didn't didn't bother to learn it you know which is a bit of a pity yeah so we're trying to pick all that back up again now 
Okay, yeah. so that's your grandfather, mm. great-grandfather. Mm. So that's a, a strong element that you've just recently discovered. Mm. What about the other aspects of your life? What, 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 what's that heritage? Yeah, my grandmother, she's uh, uh, from Calcadoon, Mount Isa area. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Aboriginal lady? Aboriginal lady, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. So came to live in the Tweed Valley. So um, that's that's my heritage. But even there, see, through the the mission and reserve days, yeah, we we haven't been able to trace a lot of that history yet either. Sure. So... Um, Few, few missing parts there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the thing with the one of the big things with the the Tweed Black community where I'm from, uh, we were very lucky in the sense that um, in 1967, when the referendum was held, that declared Aboriginals citizens. Yeah. Well, yeah. then uh, my my uh, grandfather got the same pay as a white cane cutter. And the cane cutters made quite good money. So we were very fortunate that, you know, we had a decent house. Yeah, right. And uh, we got an education. So the, the, the Tweed black community, yeah, we've been very fortunate people. I mean, you know... Wait, did he continue cane cutting when he came down to the Tweed? With the, yeah. uh, the cane industry there? Yeah. Right. Their whole life basically was fishing and cane cutting. Right. And uh, my cousin who was up the other day, I was just sharing with him. Because while I was down there the other day, I did that dids there. The, the one fresh one? That you fresh just made. one just there. Yeah. And the big one just on the left there, the tallest oh, okay. one you can see. Yeah, right. So he was amazed. That he'd never seen them before. Yeah. Uh, just to explain, we're, we're in an art gallery, an Aboriginal art gallery, and we've got oh, probably about 30 didgeridoos in various states of construction floating around along with a lot of paintings and mm. things. Yeah. So this one here... You know, the termites eat them out. But this one in particular, the chamber walls were very thick. So I actually took most of the timber off with a tomahawk. So uh, he came down and watched me do it. Then I was telling him about how, like at Fingal, where we're from, our, uh, all our old men used to build their own fishing boats on the river. Right. Oh, it was magic. Um, so I was very fortunate, you know, to see all these old men, yeah, just cut the cut the bough out of a cotton tree. Yeah, just amazing. Okay, well, in order to build the um, the ribs yeah. for a boat. So we're talking about a lot like um, dinghies, like whalers and stuff yeah. like those sort of boats. Yeah, around 20, 30 footers, you know. Okay, oh, fair size and, uh, and then they'd, uh, like at Fingal... Put motors we... in the back of them? No, be- before, like there was motors, be- but... You know, our people never had the money at that time. Sure. Eventually they got motors. Yeah. But at that time, no, they used to row, bro. Wow. Oh, I saw some amazing things when I'm growing up. Yeah, yeah, big boat to row. Oh, yeah. And I couldn't imagine they were sleek, or built with super fine timbers or anything. No, heavy. no. Oh, heavy, hard. Yeah. Weigh, yeah. weigh a lot. But, uh, yeah, I've seen uh, a lot of them go down some days trying to break through the swell. Same as the surf boats yeah, today. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. That's, yeah. They sound like a heavy-duty surf Four to boat. six rowers. Right. And uh, once they got out through the break, if there was enough wind, they'd put up sails. But, uh, but you've got to punch through the break. Oh, yeah, man. That's... Some days there you'd see, wow, get hammered. Yeah. Lose everything in the, in the ocean. Well, All the fishing. surf boats get snapped sometimes, yeah. don't they? So, you know, these things would just get swamped, yeah. I imagine. Saw some funny things too when they're trying to uh, row the boats out, but their yeah their main uh, well their main income was cutting cane uh, and uh, fishing, and then uh, Terranor and Kudjan at home Kudjan Kingsley they they uh, when that became small crop growing that was the other income was picking beans and peas right so that was their whole life. So a lot of the old cane cutters, like uh, these old fellas, in, we're just looking at a book here of Minjimbo. Yeah, we've got this amazing book with some black and white photos that go yeah. back to the... was the earliest yeah. ones I saw before? 1830? 1840s. 1840s, really old photos. Yeah. Yeah. So they would cut cane in the tweed, and when the cane season finished here, a lot of them would go Innisfail, Gordonvale, in, up north cutting cane. Yeah. And they would have worked hard and probably made okay money. Yeah, oh, they made good money, you know, for those days. But um, Tough, tough, 
Oh, tough men, man. Oh. Heavy doozies. <laughs> Don't mess around here. <laughs> but uh, the fishing, yeah, is a marvellous thing. And, of course, a lot of that's been lost today. Uh, but I was, you know, I was privileged to see all this. So did you grow up around all that construction? Yeah. You, know, you grew up with tools in your hands? Tools in my hands, helping them build the boats. And then, of course, as we got older, we'd go to sea with them as well. Okay. And, uh, oh, the Tweed, the Tweed uh, Island men were known as, yeah, as top fishermen. Right. How'd they fish? Nets or? Hand lines. Hand lines, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, amazing. Make all their own red cedar. Oh, big reels like this, bro. Reels weigh about five kilos. And uh, they used to fish with cord. Yeah, that green heavy cord. Right. Oh, man, amazing. Someday you just see the reel running around the bottom of the boat. Because some of the, like some of the big, big blues, you're talking like 70, 80 kilos. Yeah. And they're fighting fish. Oh, just amazing. Like at um, nine miles, well, they say it's nine miles ashore, but it's about, nine miles about uh, five k's directly east of Cook Island. And the two favoured ways of catching the big mackerel is uh, you anchor off the reef maybe a couple of hundred metres and you just use big uh, foam floats because they're using whole tailors or mullet or whatever. And some days you sit, so you just let your float drift back near the reef. And some days you sit there and you just see this mirror in the swell, like the swell will come on to nine mile and it'll build up like that. And then all of a sudden you see this silver flash coming through the swell. And just like a torpedo just going straight through the swell, man. When he hit that thing, the float explode. Yeah, just an amazing thing to see. And because a lot of sharks there too, just lay under the boat some days, fight a big fish, and get it right in the moment. The shark just swim out, whack, pull up the head or half the. But from the fishing and the cane cutting, now we've been very privileged people. And the the amazing thing, and like. Yeah, right around this country today. Uh, one, of, this is just my own personal thing, but I honestly believe uh, one of our biggest problems today is that uh, the indigenous people uh, we need to get back to our spirituality. Mm, because, well, I can only talk from my where I'm from, but like I've been very privileged in the sense that. Um, my old people at home, they desired to live in the spiritual realm. In other words, when I say uh, in the spiritual realm, what I'm talking about is they desired to live the life of uh, simplicity, love, sharing, peace, and uh, where today... Life is more about greed, materialism, uh, money. You know. See, one of the like one of the uh, big issues too with the the Aboriginal mission days when our old people were put on the reserves and all that. The 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 church had a big influence on a lot of the communities, and and uh, of course, uh, my own personal thing is. Um, I believe a lot of the people who, who came as missionaries really thought they were doing the right thing, you know. But, of course, a lot of them, yeah, they did some terrible things to our people. Um, but at home, at Fingal, we had a church which the old people ran themselves. There was no influence. And... Um, it was an amazing thing because because on the mission there's not a lot happening so the Sunday church was like this was the big event of the week yeah, right. <laughs> but through that uh, uh, yeah we learned to sing, play music so the church was really a social organisation rather than a religious organisation well we weren't see the sad thing with the missionaries was it was an attitude of we're the superior trying to save you black heathens. Yeah. 
And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. One community where I lived in, uh, in Noongar country in southwestern Australia, Carol Up Mission, it is, um, uh, the lease was held by the Baptist churches of Australia. And every year, the Baptist church, I just can't think of the proper name of it, but the Baptist churches hold their yearly celebration. And so I think it was 80, 88 or 89 or something, they asked the community at Carolup Mission, oh, would you, we'd like some Aboriginal content in our celebration this year. So me and four other, there was myself, another Koori guy from uh, Down Tweed, and uh, two, uh, how many was it? five of us and three other uh, Noongar guys from WA, we wrote a small skit, and we did this skit. But what we did, we reversed the roles. So we did it in a humorous way. We were the civilised black Aboriginal Christians going to save the white heathens. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it was very comical. But at the same time, it it, uh, it brought a big message home. And uh, it was held, we did it in the Wildcat Stadium in Perth. There was about 5,000 people in the stadium. And probably for an hour after we com- completed that skit, we had many missionaries come to us crying and asking for forgiveness. And Yeah, it was an amazing thing. Wow. You know, because it must have really touched the nerve, you know. But, but it sounds like you weren't doing it with any bitterness. Oh, no, no bitterness. No bitterness whatsoever. We're just telling the truth, yeah. how it affected our people and some of the instances, you know. Oh, what, what are you going to go and save those white heathens for? <laughs> oh, it's too cold, eh? Anyway, look, you, if you go, we'll look after all your dogs <laughs> or some things like this. Yeah, yeah, we'll send you some kangaroo skins if it's cold and all this sort of thing. <laughs> it, was, it was funny, but, yeah, for, probably for about an hour after that, a lot of people came to us who were former missionaries, you know. Mm. Yeah, but the thing, at, as I say, at home was uh, the, the, our elders ran the church. There was no outside influence. So they used to come and perform. We had a, like a 35-piece choir, 10-piece band. Oh, they were brilliant, man. Right. Oh, they used to shake that church. But what I'm saying is... So, so tell me about the religious part of the church. Okay, so you've got this great community vibe. Yeah. What about the religious aspect of it? You know, Christ, God, all that yeah. stuff, you know? No, well, our, like... Uh, see, one of the sad things with the missionaries was they... From what I, where I've been and lived and seen in that, the missionaries really didn't research or investigate with the Aboriginal people. What are your religious beliefs? It was just like your culture's of the devil, and you got to get yeah. rid of it. Yeah, whatever it is. This is what you need to know about is this yeah. here from the yeah. Bible. Our people already knew. We we know, like in this area here, God is known as Bayami. We know there is a Creator. Some will say it's the rainbow serpent, you know, the creator of everything around. Aboriginal people know we don't believe in evolution. We know there's a supreme creator. Now, whether you want to call that Krishna, Buddha, the rainbow serpent or whatever, we know, we know this is not some big mistake. There was just a big bang and everything slowly evolved and yeah, yeah. So the the thing at home was, of course, the missionary bought the Bible. Now, some people will say, oh, the Bible's, you know, that's for back in Moses' day and blah, blah, blah. But the amazing thing is, uh, bro, old, like old men from my community uh, who acted as elders in the church and that, they could expound the Bible. No one taught them. See, this was the amazing thing. How did you know that? So how did they know that? No, well, we believe that uh, the Spirit taught them that. Like, I've lived in the desert. If you have a look at that map there of Australia where it's marked, there's over 
15 places. That's where I've lived around this country in the last 40 years. So I've had a good look into not, not all aspects of Aboriginal life, but I've been very blessed that where I've lived around this country, there's always been an old man waiting for me right. who's taken me under his wing and, you know, taken me to places where normal people wouldn't be allowed or to see different things. So Aboriginal spirituality, does it match Christian spirituality? You know, it sort of sits side by side with it. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give you one example. Um, an old man who I had the privilege of working under in uh, Western Australia, and I'm sure his wife won't mind me mentioning his name. He's passed on, bless him, since. His name was uh, uh, Pastor Ronnie Williams. Now, Ronnie Williams is like a wild man. Uh, he would be like... Uh, in Western Australia, he's like um, a very loved man. Amazing human being. Born in, a, uh, born in a tin humpy on the side of the Swan River in Perth. Taught himself to read and write. Uh, and uh, did some amazing things that people don't even know about to this day. And I had the privilege of working under him for four years. And one day, this is what he told me. He said, John, do you know that if you read the Old Testament of the Christian Bible is almost identical to the Noongar traditional Aboriginal law. Yeah, okay. almost identical. Okay. See, and the thing is, this is what I'm saying, because of anthropology and archaeology, that's how the majority of Australians have treated our people. You Stone Age primitive abbas, man. you got no brain, actually use their animals. But... If you uh, understood, and I mean I only know a little bit myself, how Aboriginal law and culture works, it is just totally amazing. And it's, it isn't being complicated and respectful and evolved and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And particularly Aboriginal law. See, and this is why a lot of our old people today in the north are saying, oh, to the government, let us have the right to bring back traditional Aboriginal law. Because, man, you <laughs> you broke the law. You got it, man. Mm. There's no messing about, see? But uh, what I'm saying here with... Uh, well, brother, haven't, haven't, haven't they brought it back in... Haven't they brought it back in a few communities? Uh, I don't think so, bro. I thought not, I not that I know of. They could. I heard about five years ago there was a yeah. leg spearing. You yeah, know, there could a be. A bit of thievery going on. Yeah. So some fellow copped a spear in the leg. Yeah, yeah there, could, there could have been, you know. But I don't know. Maybe they would you know, change the law again and it's no longer yeah. valid. But uh, that's all I'm talking about in that area of spirituality is that you're living a life that is not of, of the normal greed and materialistic and jealousy and envy and all this sort of thing. Mm. You're trying to live on a higher level. Mm. And see, the thing at where I come from, at Fingal, that's how our elders lived there. They had absolutely nothing, but yet there was so much joy and love and harmony in the community. Well, I haven't heard you talk about struggle and deprivation. Yeah. You only speak in positive terms about this part of your life. Oh, yeah, bro. Uh, I mean, but the other side of it, of course, is like if you talk to our old people, yes. You wanted to go to town, you had to get a permit, put a badge around your neck, you know, to say you can leave the community. If you were privileged enough to... Uh, going to Tweed Heads or Coolangatta, yeah, you didn't drink in that part of the hotel. There's another little place around the corner. Yeah, right. If you went to the movies, you, there was an area roped off for all the blacks. So all what, this what, sort you, of what thing. year is this? Oh, I'm talking about late 1800s, early 1900s and oh, stuff okay. right through. Okay, so yeah, yeah. The turn of the 20th century. But, see, the, the, the thing with uh, the, the Tweed black community, and as I say... They were, uh, the island mix was there, see? Mm. And, like, to give you an idea how powerful these, our old men were, in, in the 1960s, the St George Illawarra, who were still playing in the National Rugby League comp, they'd won the premiership 
something like five or six years in a row. No one could beat them. Anyway, they came up and played the Tweed All Blacks end of season trip. Right. The Tweed All Blacks beat them 53-0. Wow. 53-0. They never even crossed the line. And from that day, uh, the the Tweed uh, Black footballers were given a lot of recognition. And from that, he lives out here at Wynnum Manly today, Uncle Lionel Morgan. He's the first Aboriginal ever picked, chosen to represent Australia in rugby league. But they were cane cutters. Man, these guys were working like 10, 12 hours a day oh. in 50, 60 degree heat. You pick up one stick of cane and it weighs 10 kilos. Yeah. You just pick up, pick up 50 at once. Mm. You know. And, uh, like, I would go some days with them and just amazing because, you know, they're working in the cane, there's no breeze. Yeah. Hot as hot, and they're running, building railway tracks, cut Human, the cane, all hand-loaded. Dirty. Oh, yeah. German. Amazing. <laughs> but from that, we were privileged that because of the money they earned, you know, we had a decent house. We, sure. we got an education. Yeah. But they were, what I'm saying here is these old people, even though they were people of peace, there was law in the community. And, like, I've, I've, I saw a, one of, uh, like, he was my grandfather's age, take to one of these guys who was in that football team that, wow, man. He's an old man in his 60s, probably only weighed half the weight of this guy who played in the Tweed Orbit. Wow, did he give him a flogging? Because the, the, the young fellow had done something wrong. Wrong, yeah, in the community. Yeah. So that respect... Like, the same as probably when you grew up, brother. Like, if you're on the mission somewhere and you're at someone's house, you've done something wrong. Oh, they just flog you on the spot. You run home and tell your grandparents, oh, well, you must have deserved it. That's right. You didn't Like, you do that today, <laughs> they'll take you to court. That's right. That's you know? Right. Yeah. Just things have changed so dramatically, exactly you know? what did happen, too. Yeah. yeah. But most, like, see, one of the things in, in my life was that... Um, I'm an only child, so my mum and dad split up when I was two, so my grandparents raised me at Fingal, and because I was an only child, I was always at someone else's house playing with other kids, eh? So my life basically has been based around uh, working with our kids, and so <clears throat> all those marks on that map there, that's the communities where I've lived around this country in the last 40 years working with kids. Because my, my thing is, um, we, we've put all our energies and focus on getting back our land. But my own personal belief is, our greatest asset on earth is our children, and we've neglected them badly. Yeah, well, there's a big problem there at the moment, isn't there? A massive problem. But government legislations and, and governments haven't helped either. But, and like this last community here where I was up in Arnhem Land, averaged 17 people to a house. Now, if you've got 17 people living in a three-, four-bedroom house, from little babies right through to 60- and 70-year-olds, will there be any social issues to deal with? You bet. Mm. And, of course, like in many uh, other ethnic groups on Earth, uh, when there's lots of problems, the world gets too much, you turn to drugs and alcohol to alleviate the stress and pain and whatever. So, you know, it's easy to say, oh, Aboriginal people, blah, 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 but when you look at uh, how our people have been treated and are still treated in many parts of this country, there's a lot of issues that haven't been dealt with yet. And so last week, with a sorry from our uh, new Prime Minister, uh, I'm, I'm very, you know, positive that we're going to see some good positive changes yeah. start to happen because he seems like he's a totally different person, This, you know, our new Prime Minister. But it's up to us too. I mean, what, what blackfellas in this country got to recognise is no one can solve the problems but us. We're the people who've got to solve the problem. We can continue to bring people in and help us, but bottom line is we are the answer to the problem. Yeah. Don't forget about blaming everyone else. Don't blame everyone else like a lot of black fellas do. 
Take a look at yourself first. Yeah, you know. I read in the paper last weekend um, that somebody, one of the old blackfellas, mm. said that one of the greatest mistakes was when Gough Whitlam uh, did some good things. And mm. one of the things he did, which was a great mistake, was sit down money. What's your thoughts about that? Mm. It's, <laughs> it's debatable, that one. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, because it's a difficult one that because you need some resources to get on your feet. Yeah. But at the same time, if the resources encourage you to sit down and yeah. do nothing because it's always there, you'll never get on your feet. Mm. Like, you, you, and we need to talk about this place that we're in. You're mm. you're a gallery owner, mm. an indigenous gallery owner, mm. and you told me just before that you're going for a bank loan, a business mm. loan, to mm. help you uh, get this thing more, yeah. more viable. You're, well, making, you're making a living out of this. You're, you know, this is your business. Yeah. You know, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, a bit of encouragement to enable people to succeed in life mm. versus that, well, government will look after me. You know, yeah. Maybe there's a lot of white fellas out there who go transgenerational yeah. and never get up. Yeah. Now, look, a couple of ways you can look at it, I suppose. But I'll give you a good example of what I observe. Um... Uh, uh, number one, uh, money was given to our people who have no idea how to manage money. So I look at the government as... <laughs> it's like you're a devil if you do and you're a devil if you don't. Very hard one. But one of my main things is large amounts of money were given to uh, Aboriginal individuals or communities or corporations who had no training in money management or, you know, how to handle money and so forth. So it's only natural. The other thing, of course, is if you get a lot, if you give a lot of money to people who've never had money, we're no different to any other people. Greed sets in. Yeah, you, you get it on a power trip, you know. So, uh, of course, a lot of the money was squandered. But a good example of what the money's done to us is this. My boutique clothing that I do, I do all the designing here, and I have a lovely friend. I've been doing boutique for over 20 years. All my clothing is made in Indonesia. Now, the amazing thing in Indonesia is, uh, uh, it's a third world country, most of it, but yet if you go to Indonesia... You want a Gucci watch? They can make it. <laughs> you want a nice pair of Adidas shoes? They can make it. Whatever you want, the Indonesians can make it. They can imitate it. Why? The people are so creative. Why? Because there is no dole. There is no handout system. So it's like every day is about survival. So if you don't make something create something, you starve. The total opposite, and this is what's happened in our country of Australia to the Aboriginal. Everything's been given to us and done for us. So we've never grown up. But what our people haven't recognised is that's the name of the game. We don't want you to grow up. We don't want you to have think for yourself and get an education. We don't want you to be running your own business enterprises. See, this is what blackfellas have got to wake up to in this country. If you're happy to stay on the dole and, and you're happy doing that, good for you, bud. But I can tell you now, you're going nowhere. Your children will go nowhere. So basically, Aboriginals who are willing to sit on their gumus, on their asses, in other words, and do nothing in life, your children will be exactly the same. You're nothing but a puppet, and I'm speaking right into the microphone here because I want me, my people to hear this. I'm sick of being a puppet, man. I'm sick of the white man saying, jump, and you've got to jump. We, we hear all this talk about rhetoric of uh, self-empowerment and determinations. Well, one of the... You only have to look in the land of Australia, the Greeks, the Chinese, the Italians. Why have they got a lot of power? because they're running their own businesses. But one of the major things that our people need to wake up to, and this, this is my main thing is, we have to provide a safe 
a strong environment for our kids. Where I'm from, Banjalang, we say jarjams. Because one of the key things to self-empowerment is education. Now, that's one of the main reasons I voted for our new Prime Minister, because leading up to the election, he put so much emphasis on education. So, OK, he's, even in his sorry speech the other day, he's saying he wants to see every four-year-old Aboriginal in Australia try, uh, have some sort of access to preschool. Well, it's up, and this is what I'm saying before, brother, no one else can help us but us. We're going to help ourselves and stop all this bullshit about the white man done this and the white man done this. We know that history. That's in the past. But fuck, stop living in the past. You know, in, in where I'm from, our old people always say this, if you keep looking back, you're always going to run into things. You're always going to stumble over. So what we need to focus on is the future. We can't change the past but we can certainly change the future. Okay, so tell me your future. Both, My, both for your community and you personally. No, well, I, I, what, I've, what I've worked out in, in life, because of government uh, funding and government legislation, uh, the only way that I could see back in when I was a young fella is, is to have some uh, freedom or empowerment is to be totally independent. So just go out on your own uh, and do your own thing. No one can stop you, and it's the same with this gallery. You know, if, if I wanted to, I can go and get a... Uh, it's, it's now called IBA since that's been folded, Indigenous Business Australia. I can go and get a loan off them if I want to. And uh, in, in many ways, they can't refuse me because of my past record of running my own businesses. I've got a good record. I've never been bankrupt. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not in... My main focus in running a business and, and including this business here is not about making money. If I wanted to, I could be filthy rich today, man. <laughs> and, and just to share with you, in 1970, I was given, at the age of 17... I was given a two-year contract with Eastern Suburbs Rugby League Club in Bondi for $50,000 at the age of 17. I could have played with uh, Ronnie Kurtz, Johnny Paird, Arthur Beetson, uh, Elvin Walters, all them great footballers. Yeah, at the age of 17, they offered trainee Salaman in the club. <laughs> but not only that, there's been many things in my life uh, the last community in Western Australia that I went to live in, I was earning $85 an hour. I had all the contracts on every caravan park in the Tweedshire Council, doing all their tree lopping and gardening. 85 bucks an hour. I went to live in a community in uh, South Western Australia. I never saw a wage for three months. So my life has never been about making money. Maybe that's the almighty's plan. You're not to have money yet. <laughs> but, but you do have to have enough money to keep these doors open, don't you? Oh, yeah, bro. Yeah, and it's a, at the moment it's a struggle here. But, but like, we've been here next month will be two years. But, like, I've seen two young artists who work with me here already. One of them just called in to see me last month. Before. He lives in Mariba. Worked here with me. Good kid, but lost. Got a few problems happening in his family. Um, doing a lot of drugs. Um, but I know he's, he's a very talented kid. And then he came here last month. He came down and done the Woodford Festival. And then uh, he come and saw me before he went back. And we sat here at this very table. And he said, I found... He, he, he said to me, I think I've found what my gift is. I said, oh, really? What's that, bro? Here you are, the tattoo. Uh -huh. So he's taken his art form into another realm now. Already started building a little thing beside his mother's house in Mariba. He showed me all his medical qualifications that you got to have for tattooing. He said, i just got to get the guns and practice now. 
So for me... So he's becoming a tattoo artist. He became a tattoo artist. Using indigenous... Yeah, design and stuff. And stuff. That could be yeah. Good. That could be very good. So really, that's that's my where my dollar is. That's nothing can compare. No money can can compete with that. That's what my reward Help, is. Helping the next generation yeah. up. Um, the, the, the gallery I had in Byron Bay, I, um, I put three young guys through the TAFE in Ballina doing business administration. One guy now has got his own graphic design in uh, Innisfail. Another young guy, Roger, he got his own little uh, art gallery in the rocks in Sydney. Cool. So those sort of things, that's, that's what I'm about. You know, um, another young guy, Jeremy, he worked with me in Byron for two years and then he came to Western Arnhem Land and worked under the old artists up there, then came back to Byron and I can show you on the computer some of his work. They sent me some of his work last year. Wow, man, just amazing. Yeah. He's now doing uh, exhibitions overseas and everything. So that's, that's what my trip is. I'm just, like this space here... I'm just providing a space for blackfellas who who work in the arts world, whether it's painting, music, dance or whatever. I'm just trying to provide a space for them to and encourage and nurture their talents, you know. But my big focus is, of course, on the younger ones. So that's my main goal. But, yeah, you've got to make money to pay the bills. Of course, people want to come here and visit you. If they want to come to Montague Road, West End, Brisbane. Yeah, come, come down. And, please. Come, come and, please. Come and buy some stuff. Come and make a didgeridoo. Yeah, we do a lot of hands-on workshops. Yeah. And, and well, you said you've got some fellow, a doctor or something, told me once who um, every time he goes to Germany, he comes in here and he buys half a dozen boomerangs yeah. to take over Germany with him. You know, he works at Michael. He works at the Royal Brisbane here. I don't know what his proper role is. But uh, twice a year, yeah, he does uh, promoting overseas medical products or whatever. And it's, they're like corporate gifts, I guess, but he comes and takes, you know, 20 or 30 boomerangs. We do special ones for him because he, he's a regular buyer. Yeah, and gives them as gifts or, you know, he might take some sarongs or things like that that yeah. we do, the batik. And, you've got a so, whole, and you told me you've got a whole range of clothing coming through. Yeah, you've got a whole new range of batik coming through in another month first this is the first lot i've done in six years i have i had a when we were in byron we had we were there for almost nine and a half years but um for three years of that i actually ran an alternate prison program on my property at nimbin what's an alternate prison program well, a lot of our, lot of our uh, Aboriginal Islander fellows are in jail just for, you know, silly minor things like traffic fines, not paying their fines. Mm. So rather than go to jail, I mean, it was up to the magistrates, of course. So I had a, I've still got a property out there, um, uh, 12 acres. We had a, the house, uh, a 25-foot caravan with an annex, and an uh, old... Um, uh, Bedford 38 footer could uh, accommodate six people. So that was our living quarters. So rather than going to jail, they would come out to the farm. And that's how the shop in Byron actually started, actually. Okay. Um, uh, and you taught them some basic skills and got them helping out? And... No, well, they, they basically it was just only for minor offences, of course. It was up to the magistrate. Rather than going to jail and be locked away where, you know, it's, it's not a good environment, they could come and stay out of the farm, maximum four months. Right. So we were doing, like, arts and craft, fencing, gardening, car maintenance, so things like this. Skills. Oh, well, they were teaching me. They knew a lot more than me, some of these fellows. So they, were, <laughs> they were teaching the other boys. But also, you know, just just providing a, a, a very... Uh, quiet, peaceful environment where if they wanted to talk about problems, they could talk. There was no strict rules there, or, you know. Um, and, of course, a lot of them were artists and crafts people. So we thought, OK, because we don't touch government funding, we'll start a, a little shop up. So we went to Byron Bay and, and uh, John Cornell, 
Oh, yeah? Yeah, Crocodile Dundee's manager gave us the best retail outlet in all of Byron Bay. The people in the main street couldn't believe it. Is that great? Yeah. He's the Beach Hotel, which John and Deli own, the last building on the right, and the building straight opposite the last building on our left, which they own, last of the original beachfront buildings, that was our gallery. Okay. And we were there for nine and a half years. Lovely people. That's that's so nice to hear, somebody who's yeah. so successful in business helping out. Like yeah. That. Oh, lovely people. Yeah. Lovely people. Yeah, it wouldn't, well, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So, you know, most of my life has just been living on communities, but the main focus has been working with the children. So, <laughs> in the next little while here, what, what are you hoping for with the gallery? Well, we're hoping to... Um, I mean, it's evolving in the two years we've been in. A lot of competition in the city, and because we haven't got the you know finance behind us, you, you go seven days a week to keep the thing going. Is but, there much genuine Aboriginal art here in Brisbane? Oh, yeah. But there's also a lot of gam and fraudulent art here as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure if you went to the cheap tourist places in the centre... Yeah, yeah. In the, there'd be knock-offs out of In China. the city, yeah. You, a lot of Taiwanese and uh, stuff there. But, you know, we're, we're doing a more educational uh, cultural experience here. So hence, the uh, uh, particularly the overseas tourists, backpackers can come here. We do uh, weaving workshops, bush seed jewellery, art workshops, didge-making workshops, yeah, hand drumming. So people can come in and do a one, two-day workshop. We do cultural tours. Yeah, so we're trying to give people a more of an uh, educational cultural experience. Which is good because we're they're sharing about their culture as well, so it's a two-way thing, you know. So it's it's really good. That's great. Yeah, but as far as the gallery here, yeah, in the future, yeah, hopefully this year we'll get to a point where we can put on a a couple of young trainees and get them in, you know, into uh, business administration. Yeah, that's that's the long-term goal. But like with the clothing now, one of, I had a phone call today from a lady, Aboriginal lady who's just opened a little gallery in Karanda out of Cairns. So the, the whole idea with the, the clothing is that once the new designs come in, I'll then start searching for uh, Aboriginal communities or individuals or families who are doing markets or you know, have got a retail outlet like the lady rang today, and I just become their wholesaler. Sure, so, yeah. You're I just supply them with the clothing, right. and they can start their own little clothing retail business up. Okay. And, see, batiking is a, a very specialised art form. I've been messing around with it for over 20 years, but I'm, I'm just a novice. But uh, why it sells is not many people can do this. It's a very unique art form. And, uh, like, the designs, the stories, yeah, very special. So it's a product, you know, that's proven itself, and it, it'll continue to prove itself because it's so unique and original. Yeah, so that's long-term. The long-term goal, bro, with this gallery is I'll be able to get it to a point uh, where it's a good business, and then I can put it up and say, okay, any black fellow want to buy this business, come and get it. Right. And then I can... Go on to your next adventure. Well, my next adventure is retirement. <laughs> no. no, my next adventure is to just to slow down and spend some time with my grandkids. Yeah. But I'd like to for this business to benefit uh, particularly younger Indigenous kids, as many as possible. But the final thing is that I can get the business to where it's making a good profit and another young Aboriginal will have the opportunity to, to buy it and run it himself or herself. Yeah. So that's the ultimate thing. Yeah. And, and for the Aboriginal people of Australia, on a final note, what, what do you hope for them in 100 years' time? Whoa. Um, After we've had three or four generations come through if a process has just been started last week that leads to something good? What yeah. would you hope for? 
uh, yeah, that we would have the same opportunities in life as any other Australian. Um, and and the thing too, of course, is my thing is that this is where we are at this time in history. I mean, one thing that a lot of our people have got to realise, we are so well off. I mean, where I get my clothes made in Indonesia, wow, man, we think we're doing it hard. Yeah, there's people running around of a night where I stay in Indonesia with no legs, no arms, begging on the street, starving, you know. And, and this is what I say to our people, yeah, think about what's going on in uh, uh, Baghdad, Iraq, Afghanistan today, <laughs> you know. When you where you you don't know whether it's safe to walk down the street, you're going to get shot or a bomb's going to go up, you know. So have a have a good look at the big picture, and give thanks, you know. Of course, many of our people uh, are living in third world conditions today, and that makes us very angry. In a country that's so wealthy, why is it today that the lifespan is still 17 to 20 years shorter? Why is it that we have I think it's the third high, highest mortality rate on earth amongst children per head per population. See, this is the hypocrisy of the land of Australia. But what, what we've got to recognise is we are so rich culturally, spiritually, and, and, and even in the monetary world, but we've been blinded by one thing. <laughs> they say here, bungu, money. See, nothing wrong with money, but when you when you let money become a god and you bow down to it, big trouble going to happen. You know, there's nothing wrong with money. Money's a great tool, yeah, but it's how you use it, yeah. So that's what, once again, brother, that's what I'm talking about living in the spirit. Even the Christian Bible says it: the love of money is the root of all evil. Nothing wrong with money. It's the love of it. It's the love of it. See. So, uh, uh, and and the the thing that I would say to a lot of our people is, um, you know, as I said before, I've lived in many parts of this country, and the thing that I've found is, if people know that you're generally trying to have a go, they'll always come and help you. Even here, since I've been here, amazing. I have a guy who comes here. He's registered in the top ten richest men in Australia. He's, he's, he said to me, any help, money, whatever you want, he said, you just ring me. Yeah, he just lives out here. On the, he got a lovely house just out here on the river at Yorongapilly. Yeah, I won't mention his name. Wow. But he's registered in the top... Uh, uh, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, forgive me. I'm telling you a lie. <laughs> he's registered in... The top hundred right. richest in Australia. Okay. Yeah. Still a wealthy man. Oh, he's a very wealthy man, right? Yeah. But he he likes what we're doing, and he's found uh, in in his research of his family tree that he has Aboriginal heritage. As many people have. Yeah. They just don't know. Yeah. And he comes here, and uh, uh, like he's a, the man's a multi multi millionaire. Uh, but uh, he's very down to earth. You wouldn't even think he had money. Very lovely guy, beautiful guy, actually. You know. So um, uh, we need to get. That's my thing. We need to get back and start living in the spirit, in that spiritual realm. I mean, it's great to uh, you know be successful. You know, there's nothing wrong with being successful. Uh, but when you let th that success think you're a superior being you're in big trouble and uh, the thing with our people is um, and this is what I see with a lot of our people sadly even in my community like we, we've been so blessed at home but we even got a QC barrister on the mission imagine that first in Australia QC barrister from my community but the thing uh, uh, like what I'm saying about living in the spirit is, is the three foundations of Aboriginal culture caring, sharing and respect yeah. 
But living in the spirit is is simply trying to live in that that path uh, where those three aspects stand firm. Yeah, caring, sharing, and respect. Yeah, and sadly, like we, the Western world, that's the mentality. Get it today and get it quick and walk over anyone to get it. Yeah. See, that's that was never part of our culture, bro. See, and this is a big issue with uh, what's happened, how the money's corrupted us. Yeah. The apology last week, this will give you an idea of the elders that I grew up with, where they were coming from in regards to this uh, living in the spiritual realm. The apology that our Prime Minister gave last week, our elders always taught us the very opposite. No. The white man don't say, he don't have to say sorry to us. We're going to say sorry to him. Now, a lot of blackfellas, if you mention this man, they want to punch your head in. Why? Okay. This was their philosophy. And once again, this is what I'm saying about, I've been very privileged. I mean, I, I didn't realize this till I got into my 20s, how blessed I was to live under these old people. Their philosophy was... If you look at the true history of this country, of course we know the, the settlers killed many of our people. Even in my community, they poisoned a lot of our community at home with strychnine in the white flower. But we also know that a lot of our people killed them in fighting and blah, blah, blah. But the philosophy why our old people always taught us, no, they don't have to say sorry to us, we say sorry to them. Is simply this. If we're walking around with anger and bitterness in our hearts and minds, physically we're alive, but spiritually we're as dead as a doornail. The moment that we can find in our heart, in our spirit, to say to him, Oh, forgive us, brother, because you know, we, we killed some of your people too. Yeah. The moment that we can come to that point in our lives, we just take off like an eagle, bro. We are free. See, nothing can hold us down. And that's one of the sad problems that I'm saying here before in this talkback. There's too many of our people living in the past with bitterness, anger, hatred. See, physically you're alive, but spiritually you've got no joy. This thing is eating away in your heart and mind. You've got no peace because of this anger and bitterness. And that's basically what this poem is talking about a bit. So our old people believe the moment that you can say to him, yeah, forgive us because we killed you. Yeah, and we accept your apology or, you know, yeah, yeah, we're sorry for what we've done. We take off. We've got no chains to hold us down. We are free, man. And that's a wonderful thing in life, that if you know it, in your mind, your body, soul and spirit, you've got no trouble. No one's chasing me, I don't have to look behind. I've done no wrong to anyone. See, and that's what our wild people always taught us. Try and learn to be content in whatever situation you're in. Be happy. Be happy. And see, the thing with Aboriginal people, brother, and this is why I really believe, why we still are alive today is because number one the Aboriginal people are very humble people that's why they, it was so easy for the English to conquer them, blah 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 but the other thing was we have a, a, a lovely sense of humour in the sense that we can laugh at ourselves we're in western society oh no you don't do that. If someone laughs at you, you want to react and get angry and think. But in our culture, we can laugh at ourselves, our own mistakes, laugh at each other. We, we don't take things as serious as Western society does. Yeah, uh, that's what our old people taught us at home because that's what they believe. The moment that you can forgive and say sorry to them, well, man, you're free. Nothing can hold you down. I haven't heard anybody speaking on that. Yeah, yeah. That hasn't come up in the conversation at all. Yeah, because bitterness and bitterness, anger, 
and all those things, it's like a, a sickness, it's like mm. a cancer. Mm. It's nibbling away at you all the time. You've got no peace because you've got all this bitterness and anger there. And sadly, a lot of our people have that today and, and need some sort of healing, see? Uh, I mean, a bit easier for me to say because I had life a bit easier. But I know what it's like, yeah, to be put down continually, believe me. Yeah. But so, yeah, this is the little palm. So let's see this palm. Yeah. This is a very simple little palm. It's called uh, Please Forgive Us. <laughs> and it goes like this. Aborigines lived on Australian plains. No one else there but the wind and rains. Happy and free, living as one. Listen, the birds, the animals, greet the morning sun. For thousands of years, or so it appears, the air was pure, the land was clean. The mountains, the forests, were pristine. Hunters, gatherers, on the move. How could they know these pale strangers would disapprove? Hunted and chased like animal herds, far from their lands to be placed on reserves. The dancing, the dreaming, their art to be scorned, the hurting, the weeping, the bitterness had been spawned, made feel like a stranger in our own land. Please try and help us to understand. What you have taken was rightfully mine. There was no agreement or treaty to sign. Is it wrong to ask that justice be made for all the broken spirits your foundations have laid. We're only asking that the truth should be known. Please forgive us if bitterness and anger we've shown. That's it, bro. That's good. Yeah. So what's your web address for anybody who's listening? Uh, www.indigenarts.com.au Indigenarts. Yeah, with a J. Spell it. I-N-D-I-J-N-A-R-T-S dot com dot au. Dot com dot au. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay, and they can get hold of you there? Yeah, they can get hold of us there, bro. Great. <laughs> so, hey, nice things. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, John, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. Yeah, you thanks fine. for having us, bro. Yeah, mate. Some yeah, good stuff. great. Good advice there. Yeah, yeah, thank thanks, you. Thanks, mate. All the best, eh? Thanks, bro. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.